Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Journey, and I am joined here today by the lovely Nicole and Rebecca. This week, Rebecca will be telling us all about the case of Samuel Little, and Nicole will be telling us all about victimology, MOs, and signatures, and how they were involved in his case. And I'm actually super interested because I've heard a lot about Samuel Little. His name is rather large in the serial killer um, realm, so I'm excited about that. Uh, but before we get started, I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised, as there are detailed descriptions of murder and mentions of sexual assault and abuse. And with that being said, I will pass it over to Rebecca. Thank you. Uh, so I actually didn't know a whole lot about Samuel Little, um, but after reading about him, I am shocked that I didn't. So I am very excited to get started. So Samuel Little is considered to be, by the FBI, the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history, uh, with him confessing to 93 murders, and the FBI has verified his confessions so far uh, to 50 of, of those murders. So due to the very large amount of victims that he hurt throughout 1970 and 2005, uh, I'm not going to be going into the details of every case, but I will do my best to tell the history uh, of his life and his crimes. So Samuel Little was born as Samuel McDowell in Reynolds, Georgia on June 7th of 1940. Little was primarily raised by his grandmother in Ohio as according to him, his mother, whose name was Bessie Mae Little, was a teenage prostitute who had abandoned him shortly after birth. And authorities do believe that Little's mother was actually in jail when Little was born. So it makes sense why he would believe he was abandoned. Um, Little's father was 19-year-old Paul McDowell, hence why he was born into that last name. However, he took on the last name Little because his mother's parents are ultimately who raised him. So, despite how prolific a serial killer Samuel Little was, uh, and how open he was to telling the police his life story, there's not actually a lot known about his childhood. But what is known about his childhood is that he had devious sexual fantasies uh, starting at a very young age, particularly around strangulation. Uh, Little told authorities that he had gotten his first erection when he was just in kindergarten while he was watching his kindergarten teacher touch her neck. And then as a teenager, he had pinned a photo from a true crime magazine onto his bedroom wall that depicted uh, a victim of strangulation. So when he was only 13 years old, so around 1953, Little confessed and was charged with his first crime, which was theft after he had stolen a bike. At this time, he was sent to the Boys Industrial School in Ohio, which was basically just a juvenile detention center. And this is where he would ultimately spend a year and a half uh, for this crime of theft. And during this time, he had amassed 47 disciplinary, fr uh, disciplinary infractions at the juvenile center. When Little was ultimately released from the detention center, unfortunately, he was not very deterred from crime. When he was 16, so around 1956, Little was charged with his second crime, which was breaking and entering in Omaha, Nebraska. After serving time in another juvenile detention center for this one, I'm not really sure how long, it didn't specify, uh, he ended up 
dropping out of high school due to problems with discipline and academic achievement. So sometime later in the late 1960s, Little had decided that he would reunite with his mother and move in with her in Miami, Florida. And at this time, he also worked multiple jobs uh, on and off. And this included at the Dade County Department of Sanitation and also as a cemetery's hand. So I guess just like mowing the lawn, stuff like that. Although he moved to Florida in the late 1960s, um, it's throughout the late 1950s and early 60s that he had a really transient lifestyle. This is kind of where it began. Um, And he continued committing crimes all over the U.S., which included fraud, driving under the influence, assault, armed robbery, sexual assault, and other crimes. So by 1975, Little had already been arrested over 25 times in 11 different states. Little had stated that during his years in prison between the 50s and 70s, he had learned how to box. Uh, It was one of the few things he enjoyed doing with his time there. And unfortunately, he would go on to use the skills he had learned from boxing uh, on his victims. So Little's first murder occurred on January 1st of 1971 in Homestead, Florida. It was New Year's Eve of 1970 when Little was at a bar in Florida where he met Mary Brosley. So when Little and Mary met, Mary was 33 years old, so she was three years older than Little. Brosley was reported missing by her family in June of 1970 uh, when she left Massachusetts unannounced, uh, including leaving her seven-year-old son with her family. Her family was very concerned as Brosley had an alcohol addiction and was also suffering from anorexia. She was only five foot four and weighed about 80 pounds uh, at the time that she was reported missing by her sister. So her sister, whose last name was Coppolino, had told police during the missing persons report that Mary was a victim of domestic abuse by her ex-husband and because of her alcohol addiction was also known to just get into vehicles with anyone who would offer her alcohol and kind of just go wherever with them. So as such, they were very concerned for her well-being. Mary had still not been located uh, by her family, so she was still technically a missing person. Uh, when she and Little met in the bar on New Year's Eve. And it's because of that, that she was still a missing person, that it took so long for her family to get closure on her case. It wasn't until decades later, in a police interview with Little, that he would tell them how he got to know Mary a little bit when they met at that bar, and that she had told him that she left her family in Maryland due to her alcoholism problems. At some point during the night on New Year's Eve, Little convinced Mary to get into his vehicle with him, where they then drove to a deserted stretch of the Florida Everglades together in the early morning. Little and Mary then got out of the car, where Little then punched her in the head, uh, which disoriented her, and then he strangled her to death and buried her in a shallow grave. Mary's body was found uh, less than a month later on January 24th of 1971 by a father and his 15-year-old son. And because of the weather conditions in Florida, um, which we've kind of talked about like decomposition in former episodes, her body had already decomposed past the point of being able to identify her. And it's because of this that uh, the Miami-Dade medical examiner was unable to confirm exactly what killed Mary as it was strangulation and there wouldn't have been any evidence of that on a decomposed body. So 
They did know that it was likely a homicide due to her being found in a shallow grave and that there was evidence of sexual assault as she was found with both of her legs put through the same leg hole of her underwear when she was found. Although they still, even though they knew it was probably homicide, couldn't really find the cause of death. Uh, But the medical examiner did find that Mary's brain was still showing an alcohol reading of 0.29 to 0.37 M. And I have to be honest, I'm not sure what measurement M is in terms of brain alcohol content because I'm only used to blood alcohol content. So if anyone does know, I would love to know as well. Um, But the examiner did say that if the reading on the higher end of that measurement was accurate, so around 0.37, it would have been likely enough to kill her alone, even if little hadn't gotten to her. So... Unfortunately, Mary's body remained unidentified until 2017, uh, and until then, her family still had no idea where she had gone. They assumed she met foul play, but they had no kind of conclusion. So in 2019, uh, Little told police during an interview that Mary was the first person he killed. He described in detail what she was wearing, which was a colorful sundress with a necklace around her neck. And this was confirmed by the coroner to be what she was wearing at the time of death. The way in which Little killed Mary was unfortunately one that he adopted for all of his murders. He did not stray from his his method. Um, He always targeted people in marginalized communities, uh, and this included sex workers, homeless people, Uh, transgender people, and also people with drug and alcohol addictions, and almost all of them were also women of color. It's very sadly for this reason that Little's murders went largely undetected for such a large time. So in addition to targeting marginalized groups, Little, as I mentioned, also had a very specific method of killing his victims, in which he did for all of the 93 that he confessed to. He would punch them in the head to either disorient or knock them out and would often, but not always, sexually assault them before strangling them. And then often, after they were deceased, Little would often masturbate over their bodies, uh, which is the reason that the FBI dubbed him the very crude nickname, the Choke and Stroke Killer. Which, that is very insensitive of the FBI, in my opinion. Yeah, that's uh, terrible, actually. There's yeah. no way. The I've never uh, put my hand over my mouth that fast in my life. There's no way that they named him that. Like, I honestly, I was like, this has to be a joke. But that was on, I think I found that on the official FBI website. Did they like go up to families and be like, yes, we think your daughter was a victim of the choke and stroke killer? Or were they like, because could you imagine saying that to someone whose daughter died? No, I couldn't. How insensitive. I, I, yeah. I'm really hoping, like, I couldn't find anything about it. I'm hoping that was just used for, like, their internal notes, and they yeah. never actually used that for the public, but I I don't know for certain, and I am concerned of whoever is dubbing nicknames in the FBI. Oh, my God. Wow. So... Despite multiple victims actually getting away from Little and reporting him, he was never actually kept in jail for a very long time. Uh, For example, in 1976, in September, Little was arrested for kidnapping and sexually assaulting a woman in Missouri. He was convicted of assault with attempt to ravish rape, which I don't believe is 
the term anymore in the U.S. law books, but at the time that was what he was charged with. Uh, But he was only sentenced three months in a county jail for this. And despite being a career criminal with dozens of convictions under his belt, including assault, sexual assault, kidnapping, and attempted murder, he never served very long jail sentences, with one of the longest up until his eventual capture uh, being two years, uh, in which he was always released and would continue to travel the country and murder innocent women. So... In 1984, Little even stood trial for the murder of a woman whose name was Patricia Mount. However, even with eyewitness testimony from Patricia's friends, physical evidence, and Little's alibi, which was pretty shaky at best, the trial only ended up taking two days, and within 30 minutes, the jury had uh, already finished deliberating, and they decided to acquit him of the crime. So... Yeah, he. there are a lot of times he could have been caught and this could have stopped, and it didn't. It's um, shocking to me that he was so well known to the police, and there was victims who survived his attacks who reported him, and the police were like, no, no, it's not you. Yeah, I know. Like, I don't, I, like, it would have taken all of this. Than- and- Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh my god, no, it's okay, you can go ahead. <laughs> um, it would have taken longer than two days even to go over his history of crime. Yeah, there was, like, multiple police interviews, like, not with Little, but just people who have investigated him, who said, like, he had the most extensive, like, rap sheet they had ever seen in their careers. Because he was just so in and out of jail. Like, he was, by definition, a career criminal. Wow. That's so mind-blowing to me. Same. <laughs> yeah. Um, so due to the method in which he killed his victims, uh, many of them, upon being found, were assumed to have died by drug or alcohol overdose uh, just because of the decomposition. And sometimes they didn't, I guess he didn't really leave strangulation marks. And also because some of the victims were known to be abusers of drugs and alcohol. Um, so because of this, they were assumed to have died by overdose, and many of them remained Jane Doe's for decades. So in 2007, Little was arrested in L.A. for possession of cocaine. Uh, we're kind of fast-forwarding a couple decades right now, but throughout 1970 and 2005, uh, strangling them, punching them in the head, and leaving them basically wherever he killed them was his method of hurting all 93 victims um so he was arrested for possession of cocaine in 2007 and he did plead guilty to this crime and was subsequently ordered to attend a court-ordered drug rehabilitation program however uh after he had failed to show up for the program a bench warrant was eventually put out for his arrest due to little living such a transient lifestyle his entire life he never really settled down and bought a house and remained in one place for very long. Authorities had a very hard time actually finding Little. Uh, So even though his warrant was put out in 2007, it wasn't until 2012 that police would eventually find him at a homeless shelter in Kentucky. uh, And they did this by tracking his social security payments. So it was at this time... Hi. Why wouldn't they track his social security payments to begin with? Like, if they had struggled for a year... That might be my next step. 
I know. I completely agree. <laughs> okay. Like why were I don't know why like five years later they went, Hey, I have a good idea. Yeah. Like, man, we're How really about struggling. this thing that could like totally pinpoint <laughs> where this person is that we've been right? trying to find? Who would have thought? How wild. Yeah, I think there was a lot wrong with <laughs> everything to do with Little's case over the decades. <laughs> um so eventually in 2012, they did find him at a homeless shelter in Kentucky. Um, and it was at this time that he was arrested by U.S. Marshals on the outstanding narcotics warrant, and he was ultimately extradited to California. So when Little was in custody in California, he had to take a mandatory DNA test. And it was at this time that police had ran his DNA through the system and linked it to three separate crime scenes. Uh, the 1987 murder of Carol Alford and the 1989 murders of both Audrey Nelson and Guadalupe Apodaca. So in September of 2014, Little was officially tried in court for those three murders, the one of Alford, Nelson, and Apodaca. And even though he maintained his innocence throughout the entire trial, um, the jury ended up finding Little guilty on all three counts of murder, where he was then sentenced to serve three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. And at this time, uh, Little was 74 years old. So even after conviction, Little had continued to maintain his evidence while in prison. However, that would end up changing four years later in 2018, when Little had agreed to be interviewed by a Texas ranger whose name was James Holland, and he was very well known by the authorities to be like, I think they called him the serial killer whisperer because he was very good at getting confessions. Um, And these interviews were assisted by FBI analysts Chrissy Palazzolo and Angela Williamson. So these interviews ended up spanning a year and a half and altogether were over 650 hours long. And in this time is when Little would confess to 93 murders in great detail. Although I believe he did say he stopped counting after 86. Somewhere in the 80s, he said he stopped counting, but it was 93 murders that he ultimately confessed to. And in these confessions, he provided uh, dates of the murders and the names of his victims, as well as the locations that they happened. And for the victims that he couldn't remember the names of, he drew detailed pictures with over 20 of them in total in hopes that he could help the police to identify them to bring closure to their families. It is believed that Little had a photographic memory because of how accurately he was able to describe the specific details of the crimes, despite being decades ago, and also because of how accurate many of his drawings were, uh, because his drawings have been able to help police identify multiple Jane Doe's and close cold cases. I was going to say, sorry to interrupt. Like, Yeah, no problem. The fact that he was able to remember that many details, like specific details for that many crimes is astounding to me. Cause like, I can't remember what I ate for dinner like two weeks ago, let alone like date, time, victim's name, like what, what happened, they looked like, what they looked like alone. Yeah. Just, I will say as terrible of a person he is, that is pretty impressive. I'm I'm glad he at least came to his senses and realized that 
he has hurt so many families and at least he's trying to help them identify and like bring closure but maybe he just shouldn't have done it in the first place but that's beside the fact (laughs) so through the year and a half of interviews Little would end up being convicted of another five of the murders, receiving another five consecutive life terms and very narrowly avoiding the death penalty. I couldn't find the specifics, uh, but so far, Little's confessions and drawings have been able to help authorities find the true identities of at least 11 former Jane Doe's. Um, And the FBI hopes to identify as many more as possible to bring closure to their families Uh, and has also posted the video confessions, images drawn by Little that associate with the confessions and the locations of where he described the crimes to the FBI's website on a special page for Samuel Little's crimes in hopes that the public will be able to help kind of put these pieces together, see if they recognize these people. And we are linking the FBI's website for this at the top of our source list, just so it's easy to find and maybe one of our listeners might know some information or know someone who who recognizes someone. Um, so in an interview with 60 Minutes, Little had said that part of the reason that he confessed was because he had hoped that his confessions might help to exonerate anyone who was wrongfully convicted of his crimes. And although I was unable to find actual numbers of how many people may have been wrongfully convicted... I did find one instance of a man in Florida whose name I unfortunately couldn't find through my research, um, who had served 22 years in prison for one of the murders conducted by Little. And because of Little's confessions, this man ended up being exonerated. How do you think you would feel after that? Like, like I would have such mixed feelings towards Samuel Little. I'd be like, oh my gosh, like, thank you so much for coming forward. Like, I can finally go home. I told you guys I didn't do it. But then I'd also be like, dude, you But why'd you do it in the first place? People. Yeah. And like, why'd you let me go to jail for that? Like, yeah. what? It would be so weird. I feel like there'd be a lot of resentment towards law enforcement to begin with, like, in general, oh, yeah. too. To be like, yeah. what the hell? Like, I told um, you guys it wasn't me. Yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting, too, that, like, his main motivator in doing this was to help those who were charged with his crimes, but not really, like, the whole bringing peace to victims' families. Like, not victim-related. It's more so, oh, there's probably people in jail for something I did. We should probably get them out. Yeah. That is very weird. there's definitely more selfish motives to confess, but I I think the only like if the only reason uh, I don't agree with what I was about to say, so never mind. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um. So in all, uh, Little confessed to 93 murders, 50 of which have already been verified, as I said by the FBI. Um, But the FBI did state that they have no reason to believe that Little isn't being truthful about the other 43 because of the amount of detailed evidence they've provided him and also because they've already been able to verify 50 of his other cases. So Little committed these heinous crimes in pretty much all over the states. Uh, He had victims in Arizona, Arkansas, California, Nevada, Ohio, Louisiana, Georgia, Florida, Kentucky, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, Illinois, Tennessee, and Maryland. 
Damn. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he really, really did live a transient lifestyle, and I can I can see why it would be so hard to track him down. Especially <laughs> with he... what we know about how the miscommunications happen, or like no communication between states, police officers. Exactly. Right? Yeah, because police departments in the states, like they're except like the FBI, which is federal, like they're all run by their own states, so they don't yeah. communicate with each other. Exactly. Was he homeless for a lot of that time? Because, like, how was he able to get all over the states? I mean, like, there's ways, but I feel like that would be difficult if you don't have a means yourself of getting across. Yeah, so I believe they said that, um, like, majority of the victims, or, like, not majority, but, like, the most victims in one state was in Florida, because Florida's kind of, like, where he usually hung out. I don't know if that was while he was living with his mother or if he was living in homeless shelters there um but he was he did have a bit of a drug addiction um and he kind of just like would do anything for money really and like people would give him rides and he would get drugs etc he might sell drugs to them to get a ride somewhere else um so he really he was homeless for most of it he did live in homeless shelters all over the, the states um and I don't have this written in my notes, but I did read it in the sources. He did say that um, killing became kind of like a drug to him. Like he felt like he was addicted to killing. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, we have heard from some other serial killers before. Um, but on December 30th of 2020, at the age of 80, Little died in a hospital in L.A. County. Although the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation did not indicate a cause of death publicly, it is known that towards the end of his life, Little did suffer from diabetes, heart problems, and other undisclosed health ailments. And additionally, a spokeswoman for the California Corrections Department, whose name is Vicki Waters, stated that there was no sign of foul play in his death, so they do believe it was a natural cause. Um... As I had mentioned earlier, we will be posting the FBI website for Samuel Little to the top of our sources, and we'll also post some of the pictures that he had drawn to our source images. Um, They are very sad to look at knowing the circumstances of them, but it is also very interesting that, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of a serial killer who's been able to provide such detailed portraits drawn, like, to help identify it very interesting but very sad i can't believe i knew very little about him given he has killed 93 people and is known as america's most prolific serial killer and yeah it's super interesting now i feel like i'm gonna go into another rabbit hole just looking at <laughs> stuff about him i think uh i don't know if we have access to it since we're in canada but on Prime Video, you know, like the Confessions of a Killer series, yeah. they have one like dedicated to him. I haven't actually looked into uh, whether we can get it here or not. I did a quick look. Um, so, any of your listeners in the states, I think that exists. I'm not that would positive. be very cool. Yeah, that would be cool. Because I genuinely had not known anything about him either and it wasn't until I was doing some research with some profs at school um basically putting together a serial a serial killer database in the media um where they had mentioned his name and um how like prolific he was and all of this stuff 
So yeah. I, I, if I didn't do that research with them too, I wouldn't have had the slightest clue of who he was. Yeah, it's so weird how prolific he was and how like not well known he was. Yeah, yeah, and I think too it's because he was only actually like discovered so recently. Like he was only charged with this in 2014, but it started in the 70s. Yeah. So it's like unlike killers like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and stuff. Like in terms of I don't want to, this sounds like not a good thing, but like mainstream serial killers, quote unquote, like we've had a lot longer to learn about the other famous ones than we have Samuel Little. Well, that's the whole thing. Like the, the, how you say mainstream serial killers, like that was a lot of what we were looking at. Oops, I just hit my mic. Is like how serial killers are portrayed in the media. Because a lot of the time is you get like the Bundy, you get the Dahmer, you get those high-profile white middle-aged men that are portrayed in media but he here he is is this black man who goes after transient high-risk victims and you don't hear of him all the time well it's like robert picton right his victims not a lot of people knew they were even going missing because of who he had targeted and um i was gonna add something else and it was so smart <laughs> Crap. it was, about it was media. so good um oh victim um, type so and i think the reason we don't really know a lot about him is because his trial didn't happen while people were still upset about the murders like all of the yes. murders happened 30 years yep. before or 40 years before he was even on trial so a lot of the people like obviously family members of course were very upset but it wasn't in media and the general public wasn't aware of it anyway so it was just this old man who was being tried for murder that happened 40 years ago yeah Yeah. that's very true because his last murder was still nine years before he was arrested yeah wow or tried like his last murder was in 2005 i think a big thing too that may have impacted that as well is because and i'll get kind of into it when it comes to the victimology piece but like because they are high risk victims, like you said with Pictons, is like people don't know they're going missing. So they're trying yeah. to link cases that they may not even see as being possibly linked to a span of like decades to try and get yeah. this guy. And yet, however many decades passed, this old man on trial for stuff that happened way back when, right? Like, yeah. it's there. It's sad to say that these victims. Like, in the grand scheme, when it comes to media and notoriety and stuff like that, they're not the victim type, you know? They're not the type to gain the popularity, to gain the interest of people, which is sad to say, but honestly is the truth to it all. Yeah, no, it's very sad that there's a whole group of people where we're like, oh yeah, law enforcement doesn't care if you die or go missing because that's just the life you live. And that's ridiculous. And it's disgusting, too, when people, like, I've seen it, I'm not really seeing it, but there's kind of that idea that, oh, they must have been asking for it. Like, if you're living that life, like, you knew that was going to happen kind of thing. And you're like, that's not the case. I'm not going to prostitute myself and hope that I get murdered. Like, yeah, no. That's not something that is just a danger of the job or at least nobody like nobody is asking to be murdered no matter what lifestyle you're living exactly okay 
Well, thank you. You had something else to say, Rebecca. Sorry. I yeah, thought. I was just going to say there is. Uh, uh, I only found it on Amazon states so i think you're right nicole it's only available in the u.s but there is confessions of a killer for samuel little so american listeners let us know how it is since we can't watch it (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think there's like youtube documentaries and like short 20 minute docu series and stuff too um on him i just never got around to watching them okay i might have to (laughs) yeah i know me too all right well thank you rebecca that was very interesting um he's quite the guy and with our little blurb of victimology i'm gonna hand it over to nicole to tell us a little bit more about it yeah um so kind of as the title of this episode suggests i'm gonna be going into victimology which we kind of just touched on um mo's and signatures but of the three i'm gonna actually start off with victimology kind of segue us into that and in my opinion it's kind of just easier to understand when looking at the three um modus operandi as well as signature they can get a bit confusing and mix it mixed up when talking about it all um but anyways victimology is the study of crime victims and is essentially just the characteristics and i guess like category for lack of a better word of victims and this is typically when there are multiple multiple victims with multiple crimes perpetrated by the same offender. So it's surprisingly, well, I guess not surprisingly, but it's actually like a sub-discipline of criminology, um, which I thought was really cool. But it does go beyond just physical similarities between victims. So it can include other factors such as age, race, their occupation, marital status, kind of personality traits. Um, the lifestyle they live, where they're living, so their physical location, and other things could include uh, circumstances of the attack as well. And this is just to name a few, like there are a lot of factors and aspects that go into a victimology. And while there are all of these factors, um, offenders tend to choose victims based off of three main criteria. And this includes availability, vulnerability, and desirability. So availability is how easily offenders are able to access potential victims. So for example, is the offender living in a very high populated, like suburban city area where they have a lot of people to choose from? Or are they kind of in a very rural, off the grid, isolated location, and they're having to kind of go looking for victims um next is vulnerability and this describes aspects of victims lives that enable the victimization to occur so for example um children those with intellectual disabilities and say like homeless individuals these people would be considered more vulnerable populations because of the circumstances of their life um there's just more involved that kind of makes them an easier target and lastly is desirability and this describes the physical attractiveness seen in potential victims um and so the physical attractiveness is related to kind of sexual crimes but this also um, entails the choice of victim based on how they satisfy the offender's intrinsic needs so if it's not um 
like sexually motivated is this victim somehow satisfying something that they're seeking um it doesn't have to be a physical attractiveness but there is that desirability component to it but a lot of the times with sexual uh, crimes they are looking at that physical attractiveness piece um and so for an example like say an offender is a heterosexual male who commits sexually motivated murders his victim pool i guess his desired victim would be woman um and then you can kind of specify that further with various characteristics but woman would be more of his desired victim type compared to men um as we also just kind of talked about or hinted to victims are also separated into risk levels and this can fall anywhere on a continuum from low to high risk victims labeled in relation to how likely an individual would be a victim and are determined um, by a whole bunch of information. And this can include gender, age, occupation, marital status, prior arrest history, and neighborhood dynamics, just to kind of list a few. And so low-risk victims are those who statistically have a lower chance of being a victim to a crime. And so examples of these would kind of be middle or upper-class people, um, suburb dwellers, um, that kind of thing. Um, I have a question. Yep. Um, So in terms of desirability, can you take, like, say you just have victims, you don't have a suspect yet. Can, if you have, like, the victims all share, like, a similar type, like, they're all women. Can you then take that information and kind of work it backwards to find? Yep. Yeah. So if you have, um, like, say you don't have a suspect at all you just have your victims you can kind of look at the pool of women and find similarities among them whether it be like a physical components um whether it be lifestyle components to them you can right. kind of reverse engineer to create a this may be a possibility mm-hmm. um and that's not to say like you would have just one option from it. Like I would assume that you would have multiple concepts and ideas and work off of that to create different scenarios for people who would try and want to victimize these women kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And so like when you, I'll go into it too with like MO and signature, like say you have, just the crime aspect you just have the victims and say the crime scene you can even extrapolate like mo and signature from that which can tell you a lot about an offender and then that can help pinpoint certain characteristics and say like belief systems even that the offender may have to try and help you find a possible suspect i just hit my mic again um so yeah, it's actually really interesting how much you can do with like just yeah. a victim in a crime scene. Well, because all I keep thinking of is like Criminal Minds. Yeah. Where they're like, oh, the suspect is a late 20s, early 30s white male from this area. And it's like, how did you get that from this like victim, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of just like, I don't know if it's like science that goes into it, but like information that you can extrapolate from certain aspects so like 
you can get a lot of like power dynamics seen depending on what's found at the location. Like you can get a lot of hints here and there to kind of allude to like, is it a female killer? Is it a male killer? Like certain yeah. aspects like that. Um, in my, I actually had a grade 10 intro to anthro sociology psychology course where part of the final was like this victimology aspect. And so you were given a list of victims, what was found on them, where they were found um, and how they died kind of thing. And you had to come up with the final suspect. And so like through the course, we learned about kind of stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes, like um, female killers and male killers, like how they differ or how they can work together. Certain characteristics that you would find in those scenarios, like women statistically kill more by like shooting and poisoning. So like, yeah if that scene at a crime and with these victims what can that tell you kind of thing um that would be such a fun project yeah yeah it was really it was really interesting um yeah and I honestly it's kind of like a fun brain game like just to watch say like an episode of criminal minds find the like various crimes that are committed and like try and extrapolate what you can from it and be like okay well yeah you know if it was a stabbing you know a lot of the times incompetency or what's the word not incompetency but um like men who can't men who can't get it up typically stab to release like sexual tension yeah that's like a huge thing apparently well, it's just like a big puzzle, right? Like it's kind of yeah, fun to like gather yeah. all those pieces and put them all together to kind of create this final image of a suspect. Yeah, you're kind of like breaking apart everything into very smaller bits and then seeing how they connect to all of them. That would be cool. Um, but yeah, anyways, side tangent. Okay, I'll let, I'll let you get back to your, <laughs> to your talk. Yeah. I just wanted to ask that question. <laughs> Side tangent, um, if you couldn't tell, I find this stuff really fascinating. <laughs> like, it's so cool. Um, but yes, yeah, so low-risk victims, uh, suburban, middle, upper-class people. Then you have your kind of middle ground, moderate-risk victims. Those are, as it says, like in between the high and the low risk. They generally have a lower chance of being victimized, but it's whatever the behaviors in like situations or circumstances they were in at the time of the crime that could have elevated their risk of being victimized um so they kind of could be to go one or the other way so like maybe you have a high class middle-aged white woman who is getting a drink at like a really ghetto shady dive bar and something happens there, that circumstance and situation at that time could elevate her risk of being a victim, even though she is this high, um, high class. Is that the right word? Anyways, upper class, um, individual. Um, so then on the opposite end from these low risks, you also have high-risk victims, and this was the case when it came to Samuel Little's victims, which we've discussed a little bit, and these include people who statistically have a higher chance of being a victim to a crime. So individuals who are homeless, um, who are like avid drug users and abusers, or even sex trade workers, 
these are all these individuals would all be considered high risk victims due to their living circumstances. And unfortunately, it's assumed that these populations just won't have anyone looking for them if they do happen to disappear. And this makes them a much more appealing population for serial killers and offenders um, to target because they know that they don't have that elevated risk of like someone looking for them. And interestingly, the risk level of the victims chosen by offenders can actually frequently allude to the, uh, to the intellectual ability of the perpetrator. So those who are targeting lower risk populations are said to have a higher intellectual capacity and those who target low or sorry, those who target high risk victims are seen to have lower intellectual capacities. So it's a bit of an inverse relationship between the risk level and the intellectual level. I'm not entirely positive how this came to be, how they found this out, or like the studies that show it. It was in one of the sources I found, and I thought it would be really interesting to relay. But I guess it makes sense. Like if you're going after low risk populations there's more involved and more that has to be considered to get away with like the perfect crime like it's not just you're going out to the street killing someone walking out you know you said low risk but i think you mean did high i risk yeah i mean like so like oh, no 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 i'm confused sorry no i'm with you <laughs> i'm with you i'm confused <laughs> yeah, yeah so no, low okay. risk so low risk, you're smarter. High yeah. risk, you're not as smart. Because yes. you don't have to put as much effort into planning and like how to get away with it. Yeah, because unfortunately, authorities are probably going to put more care into like uh, investigations into low risk victims. So like you yeah. need to be more cautious of like, oh, don't leave fingerprints. Don't leave yeah. other like, don't leave hair. Don't all that stuff. So I can definitely see how that could be the case. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Well, I feel and like, I guess like, sorry, go ahead. sorry. Um, I feel like you would be rather intelligent to choose high risk victims because they're not going to get investigated. Right. So you yeah, have a I higher likelihood of not getting caught. Mm, Whereas if you yeah. choose a low risk victim there, that scene's going to be investigated thoroughly. So, like, yeah. if I was a serial killer, I wouldn't choose high risk. That's why they say, like, don't hunt where you live, right? Like, Or you mean you so wouldn't choose low risk? I would choose high risk victims. Like transient victims? Yes. Yeah, okay. I just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to this is very get, make sure we were, I know, I just wanted yeah. to make sure we're on the same page. No, but, like, I wouldn't choose to kill that rich white lady. Because yeah. she's a rich white lady and people would care, right? Yeah. And I think, like, the standpoint on, like, that inverse relationship, like, oh, if you do choose to kill that rich white lady, you know you know that there's a higher chance of getting caught. Yeah. So the, like, your, like, your intellectual capacity or whatever is going to be higher because you then have to be like, mm, what do I have to do? to get away with it like yeah it doesn't make you smarter in the sense of street smart of like oh <laughs> like i killed the rich white lady but like the processing and i kind of think of um 
like Ted Kaczynski, like his intellectual like capacity through the roof. He was so yeah. fucking smart, and he did go after like um, university educated um, populations yeah. and stuff like but that. But a so lot like- of his was to like pass on a message that directly affected mm-hmm. those people. So mm-hmm. I feel like if you want like a main goal is this message, then yeah, choose the low risk victims because yeah. people are going to listen, you know? But again, you have to be super smart to even yeah. think if you're about just, that. Yeah. And like if you're willy nilly just like, I want to kill someone to kill someone, you're it doesn't make sense. You're to not go. gonna do that. <laughs> you're yeah. you're not gonna go for the the rich old white lady. I hope. Um at least. But yes, victimology. That's yes, victimology. <laughs> um, next, I wanted to touch on modus operandi. And this is also known as the method of operation or MO, which is most commonly referred to. I'm also very lazy, so I'm just going to be referring to it as MO um, for the sake of this episode. But simply put, An MO is a learned behavior that enables offenders to successfully commit crimes. So their offender's actions and their dynamic in nature. So this means that MOs can change over time and they're malleable to outside forces. So it's something that kind of evolves and adapts with the offender as they continue to commit more and more crimes, as they gain more experience and as they gain more confidence in their actions. So an example, like if someone was to break into a house to commit a robbery, if their first time around, they come in through say the window by breaking a window or unlocking a latch through broken glass, this will cause a lot of noise and thus ultimately like cause them to kind of maybe panic and rush and not do a great job with this robbery. The next time they go to rob a house, though, they'll remember, oh, fuck, or sorry, oh, shoot, first time, <laughs> first time I robbed a house, this happened, I'm going to change that. So maybe I'm going to bring a crowbar to pry open a window, reduce the amount of noise um, there, and have more time to take as much as I can. So using this cry- crowbar or pry bar... Um, this would be an adaptation to their original MO, allowing them to successfully commit this crime and get away with it. So it's really anything that um, helps them get away with whatever they're doing. The dynamic component to an MO doesn't always have to happen, though. So like, if certain things are working favorably for the offender and it's letting them offend well these actions or behaviors will most likely continually be seen in future crimes because why, like, what is the saying? If the, if the shoe fits something, something don't fix it. If whatever, if it works, don't fix it. That's the case with this, with this here. Um, It's the behaviors and no, it's the behaviors that result in unwanted outcomes that are often going to be changed or shifted and seen as a change in the offender's MO, if that makes sense. Um, 
And so due to the fact that an offender's MO can change throughout their career, their offending career, it's important that it's not the only aspect considered when attempting to link these various crimes. So as I just kind of mentioned, it's common that the first offense will differ considerably compared to any of their future offenses um, in regard to their MO because they're kind of like refining their crime, I guess, for lack of better terms. And there are several aspects that can be a part of someone's MO. And some examples include the time of day, location of the crime, you know, what weapon was used, the gender and age of a victim, as well as how the offender gets from point A to point B. So like, are they publicly transporting themselves? Are they driving themselves? Are they walking or taking the bus? That kind of thing. And MOs aren't super clear cut and can vary in their complexity. And they can kind of range from simple to surprisingly incredibly sophisticated. And it's um, prior experience of the offender, their motivation and their intelligence that can all influence this level of sophistication um, seen in their MO. So some aspects that may impact the future of an offender's MO include incarceration and victim response. So as I kind of talked about, if something goes wrong for an offender while they're committing a crime, they're going to learn from these past mistakes. These mistakes could have possibly resulted in incarceration, and this would ultimately refine their MO. And uh, if you're incarcerated, I feel like that gives you just like a lot of time to go over what went wrong to just kind of perfect it for your next time around if you know, your mo- your main goal getting out of jail is to reoffend. Um, and if victims fight back, an offender may modify their MO, possibly finding alter- alternative ways to restrain them, or they may even resort to an increase in violence if the restraint methods are um, ineffective. So for the first, say, for example, you have a first crime, it's just started as like, a sexual assault, but the victim really put up a big fight. Like an offender who maybe tried to restrain limbs, they may change that to like incapacitating them completely by like knocking them out. So you'll see that escalation in violence depending on how victims respond to this offender. Um, Other factors that the offender may have no control over can also affect how they commit their crime and ultimately their MO. So victims' availability and behavioral responses, in addition to whether the offender may have been interrupted, are all circumstances that may alter their MO. And their MO can play an important role in linking a string of cases together. But that being said, investigators can unfortunately place kind of too much importance and too much significance on MOs when attempting to link crimes. And so it's important to use it as supporting evidence when building a case rather than the main aspect. So like, as we were talking about like victimology, say you only have your victims and the circumstances of the crime, like you wouldn't want to just try to link the cases based off of MO. You would want to take the information gained from the victimology, um, and from the crime that you get and add that into kind of your MO findings. Yeah. Um, 
because I was just thinking like right before you said that about how in like a lot of TV shows and stuff, they're like, oh yeah, there was the same MO present on like all these bodies. But I'm like, if the killer is smart enough to change it every time, then you cannot link these bodies together by their quote unquote MO. Exactly. Like they can have the same theme, I guess, but like it's not going to be exactly the same every time. Yeah. And I think like, unless you have the perfect crime or like the perfect murder. Yeah. Like you said, there is going to be those changes, even if they're small, small changes. And I think that's the thing that make it like some, unless it's the same MO for all of the cases, investigators may be like, oh, well, it's a different MO. So like they aren't linked. They may use that as a, not an excuse, but a reason to kind of push off the linkage yeah. of cases. Yeah. So, which I think is not great. Um, well, because I think it would yeah. be one thing if it was like, okay, with um, Samuel Little. Okay, this person was had blunt force trauma to their head and they were tied up. But what they were used to be tied up for or like with is different than this other person who has the same blunt force trauma and was also tied up. But I feel like in that mm-hmm. case, you're like, okay, just the like string or whatever that was used, that's all that changed versus someone who's like, okay, I stabbed this one victim, but then I shot this other victim because it was faster. Yeah. Those are so vastly different. Yeah. And I think it's like important too, to just kind of like boil it down really like, okay, they both have blunt force trauma. They were both restrained, but the method of restraint is different. Why might that be the case? Is it- to make it easier for them is it an availability thing like are they just using whatever's in the house or are they coming with their own restraints yeah like that kind of thing and then then you can use that to then link the cases rather than be like oh well it was duct tape in one and rope in the other can't be the same person yeah exactly um but yeah so apparently in the states though prosecutors are only able to link crimes by mo which yeah which i'm very confused by and i don't know like i have to be honest i didn't do a whole lot of looking into this um i read it in john douglas's mind hunter i really recommend it great book he was one of the first criminal profilers with the fbi so i kind of not gonna lie just took his word for it um but yeah, so he said prosecutors are only able to link crimes by MO, and John Douglas says this to be uh, an incredibly archaic method, which I agree with. So I don't know why they haven't really changed that. Yeah. Um, you know? I guess like, there just must be so much, like, MO just must encompass everything. Like, victimology, injuries, signature, like, it must just be, like, a catch-all term that they use. Yeah. That would be the only thing that I could see why. Because even for us, we have our limited forensics knowledge, but like common sense. We can see that you shouldn't use strictly MO when linking crimes. Like it just logically doesn't make sense. Well, forensically, you need more than one thing for Mm -hmm. everything. Like you need one one more piece of evidence. You need more than one thing linking all of these crimes together like you have to look at everything because it's so easy to make a mistake yeah and does this mean like they can't link cases by 
DNA? Like, like what about the no. physical evidence? Yeah, yeah. I like. Um, I have to be honest. I have absolutely no idea. Like, I'm just kind of speculating this next part. But I feel like when they say they're only able to link crimes by mo, I think that's referring to when they don't have the physical hard evidence. Oh, okay. okay, yeah, that that makes more sense. <laughs> like that would be my assumption. I'm hoping that's the case because it wouldn't make sense. Like if you have DNA profiles linking a possible suspect to all of these crimes, yeah, you should be allowed to use that. Um, my assumption is that they can really only use MO to link the crimes and like the story around the crime. So like when they're kind of coming up with what happened and like the scenario and circumstances of those crimes and how they may all be related. That's when they'll use MO um, to link them. Okay. I could be completely wrong, but that's my assumption. Works for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so John Douglas, he was the first criminal, one of the first criminal profilers with FBI. It's actually who, um, Gideon off of Criminal Minds is based off of, which I thought was really cool. Oh, I um, didn't know Gideon was based off of him. I thought you yeah. were going to say like the actual um uh like Mindhunter show. And I was like, "Well, yeah, that. that <laughs> yeah. That's based off of him, yeah. But in Criminal Minds, yeah. Um Oh, I didn't Gideon. know that. Mhm. That's cool. But yeah, so John Douglas, he wrote Mindhunter. He also wrote another one called Law and Disorder. I recommend them. A little book plug in there for our listeners. Um, And he was surprisingly the one to coin the term signature. So that's what I'll be talking about next. But he he coined the term signature to distinguish it from MO, since there often is confusion and overlap around the two when discussing um, like a criminal context in that nature does that make sense words are hard um but anyways signatures are seen as kind of an offender's calling card and so similar to mo's their actions they are actions but signatures kind of express the killer's personality and so it's something that they feel compelled to do to kind of like fulfill something within themselves when committing crimes so the these actions aren't necessarily helpful in per- perpetrating per yeah that a crime in committing a crime that's the word <laughs> um whereas like mo actions to help get away with it signature is like what do i need to do to fulfill something emotional within me and so signatures are going to be static, unlike um, MOs, which are dynamic. And so being static, this means that they don't change over time. And even though they don't change, they may evolve in a way. And it's so certain aspects may become more refined. So that's kind of the only change that's going to that's gonna happen, excuse me. So signatures give insight into the psychological profile and behavioral aspects of offenders by identifying unique combinations and patterns that may arise from like fantasies or motivations that they may have. And so because of this, an offender's signature can be incredibly helpful when investigating multiple possibly linked crimes, in addition to even being helpful in like aspects of court decision making. 
which I thought was really interesting. So some examples of a signature could be positioning the victim after a murder, sending letters to magazines post-crime, or taking souvenirs or like taking photographs of these victims. So both MOs and signatures, like we've talked about, are important concepts when it comes to criminal investigations, but identifying patterns of behavior can help investigators learn more about the offender and thus help them build more of a case together. And if I were to create a tiered list, this is completely my personal opinion, but um, it is kind of based off the information. I would say that signature would be the most important aspect to consider when trying to solve a crime or link crimes. Then you have MO and then um, victimology and shared aspects between victims. And I think this is like, for me, it's just because you can gain more about the offender through signature than you can victimology or like MO. Like if you had two crimes, one, you get a really good idea about the signature and another crime where just the victims are related. The signature would tell you more and help you out more in the aspect of who did this, if that makes sense. Um, And then the confusion between MO and signature comes down to whether the action was done to avoid detection or like to help them commit this crime or if it was done as a means to fulfill their desires. So an offender, if an offender, sorry, stages their victims or crime scenes, and this means like positioning the victim or kind of setting the crime scene in a given way, this would be an aspect of their MO since they're trying to throw off the police investigation. So it's meant to make police think that something else occurred than what they did. On the other hand, posing which is different than staging, um, posing would be an aspect of an offender's signature. So the difference here is that the offender is treating the victim as a means to leave a specific message. So there's no like intent on confusing investigators or trying to lead them in the wrong direction. It's, it's something that they have to do to either get a message across or um, get off on it. And it could even like, impede on not impede but like get in the way of successfully committing a crime so a good example that john douglas gives in his book mindhunter is they compare two bank robbers both bank robbers force their the patrons of the bank to undress so summed up robber one forces the patrons to undress in an attempt to distract them preoccupying them and thus giving him more time to rob the bank. Robber two, though, he does the same thing, forces everyone to undress, um, but he then proceeds to take photographs of everyone. And that's the key difference because taking the pictures of these undressed patrons, that's not helping him commit the crime. If anything, it's slowing him down and increasing the chance he gets caught. It's like that photograph aspect is something that he feels or the robber too can feels compelled feels compelled to do to get off on this crime so robber one's method would be his mo it gives him more time to rob the bank it reduces the likelihood of any patron interference just by undressing them having them undress while he takes money 
Robbers 2 method, though, would be his signature. And like I said, like in no way does photographing the victims help him successfully commit this crime. It goes beyond that and is emotionally relevant to the offender. So it kind of revolves around shaming the bankers and capturing that moment of shame. Could have been shame he felt as a child that he has to inflict on other people now. And if anything, like I said, doing this will increase the risk of getting caught. But that doesn't matter to them. It's just, it's almost like a ritual. They have to do it um, while committing these crimes. And um, I know this was more of a brief, I wouldn't say brief at this point because I have been rambling on for quite a while, but just kind of like a a overview of the three topics. Um, I didn't have, I didn't want to go too, too in depth. Uh, with three different topics for half an episode. But if any of you guys, any of our listeners do want to learn more about victimology, Emma or signatures, let us know. I feel like none of us would uh, have anything against doing an episode on one of those topics specifically. Um, I think that would be really fun to do. But I do know um, Rebecca did talk about victimology in regards to Samuel Litter, Samuel Little. Um, But yeah, that's kind of all three of those together. Awesome. Yeah, I I remember. I think it's interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Rebecca. (laughs) I was just going to say, I think it's interesting that like, you can kind of see, like, I don't think every serial killer has a specific, actually, no, that was a lie. But I don't think every serial killer has a signature, which, like, mm-hmm. is surprising a little bit because a lot of them do it for some sort of, like, satisfaction, like you were saying. But, like, with Samuel Little, like, he definitely had a victimology. Like, he yep. was going after yeah. low or high-risk individuals. Um, and, like, he had an MO for every crime. He did the same thing. He would punch them and strangle them. But he really didn't leave any signatures, and I think that's part of the reason it made it so hard to pin them all to him. Yeah, I yeah. agree. The interesting thing, too, uh, in a conversation I was having with profs around Samuel Little and kind of in relation to victimology is, I guess there was an interview conducted with Samuel Little, and the interview was a very beautiful white woman. And I guess she had kind of alluded to the fact like I wouldn't want to have seen you on the streets or I wouldn't have wanted to walk past you in an alleyway kind of thing and his response was along the lines like oh like why like you would have no reason to be scared of me you're not who I would have gone after like you're a white woman a white middle class upper woman you're fine like I would not have killed you because like like he went after those high risk lower class I I think the majority were all people of color women of color um and they were all either homeless or drug users like sex trade workers like he was yeah it was just like the nonchalantness I guess of the oh I wouldn't you have no reason to be scared of me you're fine yeah like when I was reading articles about him as well like the quote I'm about to say isn't verbatim, but he basically said, he was like, no, I, I never went after anyone of influence. I never killed no political figures. I always stayed in the ghettos. Like that was one of something he had said. Wow. Yeah. So I think that's what I'm, I don't have the exact quote. This is just kind of based off a conversation I had with my props, but yeah, that was like exactly the thing that they were mentioning. 
Which I find so interesting. And he was so, like, open about it. He was like, I I had my hunting grounds. I had the people I killed. It worked for me. I, why would I go outside of that, you know? Just no shame. Yeah, no. That's crazy. Yeah, because I remember, like, bringing it back to, like, Emma's and Signature, but I remember reading in the Mindhunter book because I had Emma's and Signature's, like, kind of as the same thing or, like, backwards. Mm-hmm. I did because, too. Yeah, we always hear about, like, the MO being so specific that no other person could possibly have this MO and kill this person this way. So I was like, oh, and then they talk about their signature. And I'm like, what even is the difference? Like, there's yeah. nothing really. So it was kind of nice of you to kind of go over everything and highlight what was different about them. Yeah. And I think that's like a big part too. And especially why like John Douglas created the term signature is yeah. because there is that overlap. And like, you can have certain actions that could fall in both signature and mo it's just like the offender's intentions behind it that changes whether it's an mo or whether it's part of their signature which i find so cool rather confusing but quite interesting yeah very interesting um okay well thank you nicole that was just so interesting and enlightening and i love it And listeners, let us know if you want us to do episodes on each of the three topics separately, um, because that would be very, very interesting. And so our next topic is one I'm kind of excited about, is Luca Magnata and kind of like the fame around killing people, like why killers kill for fame, kind of like he did. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, and I found a joke for you guys, but it has nothing to do with what we talked about because Googling, um, like confession jokes just brings up like religious confessions. So, oh, um, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, I can't wait. (laughs) So, uh, where do coins get committed after a crime? Where do coins? At the, okay, where? I don't know. The penitentiary. Oh. (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) I like it. I just like seeing the word penitentiary spelled by penny. Are pennies still a thing elsewhere? Are they still a thing? I think they still are in the States. Yeah, we got tipped a United States penny yesterday. And I was like, thank you so much. What a great tip. Wow. That's so kind of I was like, thank you so much. (laughs) Jeez. Um, but yeah, okay. Uh, Rebecca, did you want to tell people where they can find us? I would love to. So people can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is at WTForensicsPC. Um, you can find us on our website at WhatTheForensics.ca, where, you, where you'll find all of our sources, our source images that we were talking about today. Uh, and also some information about us and a way to get in contact if you have any questions or episode uh, ideas. Um, or you can directly email us at whatthefrensics at gmail.com. We are most active on Instagram and Facebook. So if you kind of want to like stay up to date with our with What the Forensics news, uh, those are probably your best places to look. But yeah, that's where you find us. Awesome. Thank you. So, with that being said, um, 
This has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it. It was super fun for us. And uh, we hope you tune in next time. Bye. 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 (laughs) Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm